Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Kyiv's wartime crisis just got worse, as Russia says its plane returning 65 Ukrainian POWs crashed, killing all on board. A report from the field where the country's need for military aid is urgent. Then... Immigration's a big deal, big deal, a very big deal. We have millions and millions of people flowing into our country illegally. Winning in New Hampshire, Trump doubles down on his signature message. I'll ask a frontline mayor in Texas, Republican Javier Villalobos, whether anyone has laid out a successful strategy. Plus... If we don't die from airstrikes, we're going to die from dehydration and starvation. A sneak peek into hell. We bring you a day in the life and death of Gaza. Next. With a Trump-Biden rematch looking more and more likely, how allies around the world are trying to Trump-proof, with journalists Emily Maitlis and Mark Landler. Also ahead... There has to be economic warriors in the community to create economic justice. Oscar-nominated short documentary The Barber of Little Rock explores one man's fight to close the racial wealth gap in his community. Michelle Martin speaks with director John Hoffman and his inspiration, Arlo Washington. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. It's been 700 days since Vladimir Putin launched his illegal invasion on Ukraine, whose fate hangs dangerously in the balance now. Adding to the misery, a regular prisoner swap appears to have ended in tragedy, as Russia says a military transport plane crashed near the border, killing at least 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war on board. And the latest, Russian missile strikes across Ukraine killed 18 people and injured at least 130. Kyiv remains resolute but says their forces are no longer receiving enough ammunition and air defense missiles from the United States and NATO allies. Correspondent Fred Pleitkin joins me now from eastern Ukraine. Um, Fred, thanks for being with us. Can you bring us up to date about this Russian claim of that crash? And have the Ukrainian authorities actually confirmed it? Well, the Ukrainian authorities, uh, Christian, uh, appear to be confirming it now. However, the big question is whether or not the Ukrainians might be behind actually taking that plane down, albeit this possibly being a, a tragic accident and then not knowing that there may have been Ukrainian POWs actually on that plane. Now, the Russians are saying that the plane crashed at around 11.15 local time uh, near Belgorod, which is on the Russian side of the border, but of course very close to Ukrainian territory. It's an IL-76 transport aircraft, which is usually 
the workhorse of the Russian Air Force, and of course also one that the Russians use quite frequently uh, to support their logistics for what they call the special military operation, obviously the invasion of Ukraine. The Russians are saying that this plane was taken down on the Russian side of the border near Belgorod by a Ukrainian surface-to-air missile also launched from the border area on the Ukrainian side. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he was at the UN today blaming the Ukrainians, ripping into the Ukrainians, and also saying that there were 65 prisoners of war from the Ukrainians on board that plane set to go to a prisoner exchange. Now, the Ukrainians are confirming that a prisoner exchange was set to take place today and that that prisoner exchange has been called off. However, they say they don't know anything about the possible fate of these prisoners and whether or not they were on board this plane. And I think one of the key things, and it's, it's one of the things that you were alluding to there, is that the Ukrainians are saying that transport aircraft that fly into Belgorod are subject to possibly being taken down by Ukrainian surface-to-air missiles because those transport aircraft also very frequently carry missiles on them with the Russians then used to attack Ukrainian territory. So this may have been an accidental takedown by the Ukrainians, not knowing that there were possibly prisoners of war on that plane. However, it is very much unclear at this point who was on that plane and whether or not the Ukrainians even took it down. However, of course, we have seen uh, that video uh, from near the Belgorod area with that massive fireball after the plane impacted. Needless to say that the authorities there are saying there is an investigation going on, but no one on that plane survived. Christian. I mean, there are a lot of questions there. Was there video of an impact of a missile on the plane? Uh, did the Ukrainians say that they had taken out a plane, no matter what it was? I guess these questions are still uh, to be answered. But in the meantime, you know, you're there in the east. I mean, you're reporting and others are reporting the really dire situation, given the holdup in Congress and also in the EU of aid, of, of ammunition, of surface to air missiles. Can you tell us from your perspective what you're seeing? You know what, I think that the situation is actually even a lot worse than many people in, in Western countries are perceiving. Um, one of the things that we've seen here on the front lines, and exactly the, the two things that you've been talking about, one of them is surface-to-air missile systems, where the Ukrainians uh, are very much saying that things are in jeopardy, because these surface-to-air missile systems from Western nations, they are extremely effective. If you're talking about the IRIS-T system from the Germans, but then also, of course, the Patriot missile system, the Ukrainians are saying there's a lot of Russian missiles that are fired, at Ukrainian territory that can only be taken down with these systems. And of course, they're very uh, concerned that the supplies of those missiles might not be replenished, especially right now from the U.S. systems, of course, with that deadlock in Congress. But the other big thing that we're seeing here on the front line, Christian, which is also extremely important, is 155 millimeter artillery ammunition. We've been to pretty much the three toughest areas right now for the Ukrainians on the front line. There's a place called Marienka, and uh, Avdivka and around Bakhmut in the east of the country. And in all of those places, the Ukrainians have been telling us shortage of artillery ammo is their biggest problem. They say that the Russians are pushing with assaults. They say that a lot of Russians are dying and getting wounded in those assaults. But the Ukrainians are unable to hold a lot of those assaults up because they lack ammo. And right now they say the situation is getting worse by the day, Christian. It really does sound like a crisis for Ukraine and, of course, for the West and the United States. Thank you so much, Fred Pleitkin. Now,
The next major tranche of military aid to Ukraine languishes in Congress, where House Republicans are refusing to budge unless their demands are met over the U.S. southern border. President Biden says he hopes a deal will be reached this week and is open to, quote, massive changes. Authorities are dealing with a historic number of migrants at the Mexican border. Last month saw the biggest crossing in 23 years. And as the November election gets closer, immigration is growing as a key voting issue. One official on the front lines is Javier Villalobos, Republican mayor of McAllen, Texas. He argues the federal government is failing his community and he's joining me now to talk about this crisis. Mayor Villalobos, welcome to the program. So can you just describe to me how it looks and how it, what's going on in your community if this is, represents a historic influx? It is, and as a matter of fact, we are fortunate that here in McAllen, we are not the way we used to be. We probably have about 300, 400 immigrants per day. So logistically, it has not been too difficult anymore. But our sister cities of Eagle Pass, El Rio, the other areas, and then throughout the country, it is. It, it isn't good. And I think the perspective of the American people and the reason I believe it's really affecting these elections is that the perspective is changing from not necessarily just immigration, but national security and intermingling both as, as one. And which in reality is true. We are concerned, as you all just discussed about Ukraine and Israel, a lot of people coming in and we don't know who they are. We don't know who they are, and that concerns not only me, but I think the American people are concerned as to who's coming without identification, without knowing their, their real purpose. And that's, I think, may sway an election. So, okay, okay, that, let's, let's get to that in a moment. But I just want to get your perspective again, because you said McAllen seems to be weathering the storm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and actually, McAllen seems to, according to all the stats, uh, be a, a pretty safe place. So are you still saying that your city is safe? Um, and... What do you mean by national security? What have you noticed that might raise national security questions? Okay, definitely. We are very fortunate that McAllen, the immigrants uh, pass through here. And we take no position as to whether they're legal, illegal. It doesn't matter to us. We are not in the business of immigration, but they do go up north, which is the reason New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, other areas are having the difficulties. Now, the reason for national security is that these immigrants are not the ones we're too concerned about, but the ones that cross outside of the port of entries. We know that a lot of people have been captured that are in the national watch list, but we can just imagine how many have not. So the people, I know that the American people are getting concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And we, as municipalities, we are not in the business of immigration. We've been weathering this for more than 10 years. So logistically, it's not that difficult for us anymore, especially when it's only about three, 400 immigrants per day, when at one point we're doing in excess of 2,000. So it, it's taking it's taking a toll in, on McAllen and of different areas, and now even the northern states, which we knew it would, because the immigrants do not want to stay around the border. Right. And of course, they're trying to escape that and get to as, 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 as best a life as they possibly can. So I want to ask you then, uh, you, have, you have criticized the federal government for failing in their uh, obligations, as you put it, down on the border. And 
And it appears that your governor, a state official, is taking matters into his own hand and he's done a whole load of extra border security, uh, razor wire, he's put floating barriers inside the river, the Rio Grande, and that went to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court said, no, he had to take them away. What is, what are you looking for? What do you want to happen? And what do you think of what your governor's been doing? Well, we definitely do blame the federal system. And when I say the federal system, I talk, I'm talking about either party, both Republicans and Democrats. They haven't been able to figure this out. Now, when it comes to Governor Abbott, you know, it's something that once again, we talk about just like a municipality doesn't have an obligation regarding immigration or national security, neither does the state. However, what do you do when the federal government is failing? Somebody has to take action. And, you know, whether you agree with the governor or not, at least there's a sense of action that he's trying to do something. And that's what we think, we believe is, we're failing from our federal government. Uh, and, and with these tragedies, and we saw it, you know, during the Trump administration, you say that, you know, both administrations, Democrat, Republican, have all failed. We saw terrible tragedies of families being separated and the like. And now we're seeing, last week, a woman and two children, all migrants from Mexico, drowning near Eagle Pass, Texas, where state authorities had hampered federal access. Um, Texas disputes this, but there's real cost in human life as well to these political um, inability to figure out a solution. And that's absolutely correct. There has been a lot of lives lost, but that is exactly correct because of the people's or the federal government's failure to act and to act properly. And that's what we've been arguing. It is not our obligation. It is theirs to act, to keep on setting political issues aside and work for us, work for our American people, for national security, because in reality, it really is now intertwined. Mm -hmm. So as you know better than I do, the Senate appears in the midst and close to a bipartisan agreement on the border, uh, on security there. President Biden says he backs the bill, even though it promises to restrict asylum claims, and he's getting pressure from his left wing. Um, here's his position. Let me just put this to you. My team has been at the table for weeks now on a partisan, with a bipartisan group of senators to negotiate a deal, including border because I believe we need significant policy changes at the border, including changes in our asylum system to ensure that we have the authorities we need to control the border. And I'm ready to act. So, as you know, the administration says they've sent a comprehensive bill to Congress. They're part of their Ukraine-Israel military bill has attached a request for 20,000 more border guards. Is the president doing enough? Well, at least it's an attempt. However, we also understand what happens in Washington. Tit for tat, you give me this and I'll, I'll take that. It's, and that's unfortunately, look, we're talking, when we're talking about immigration, it's a standalone issue that shouldn't be, uh, of course, has to be worked with other things, but not necessarily uh, held hostage for other things. I am happy that they're at least trying to do, have an, a bipartisan effort to deal with it, because that's what we need. It has to be bipartisan. Um, which brings us to the problem, because even if the Senate uh, comes up with something, a bipartisan, it looks like the MAGA Republicans in the House are going to kill it, um, and it won't be it won't be passed. Um, it could just die there. Uh, President Trump, you know, keeps spouting on about millions and millions and millions of people, and and I wonder, you know, 
whether these Republicans who stand in the way of this and who've said it sincerely want to fix the problem or, as many have, have described them, the MAGA Republicans in Congress, really liking the chaos, liking the celebrity, liking the whole sort of theatrics, the performative part of all of this. Do you think, are you confident that the Republicans in the House actually want to come to some kind of agreement? Well, I think actually the, the problems in the House is really the extremes of either party, uh, not necessarily the MAGA Republicans or uh, just definitely them or just definitely the left wing of the Democrat Party. Uh, that we have a problem, and we've always been saying it, that they utilize immigration and all other social issues for the to divide people and to raise money. And we keep on saying, stop doing that. Look, there's a lot more people in the middle than the right and the left. However, they're disillusioned with the American system as far as voting and everything. They don't want to get involved anymore. But the problem we are having, and it's not just one party, it's both. And it really, to me, is the extremes. Can I ask you a question? Because this has shocked many people overseas, and it was a comment Trump made about um, migrants. I just want to first mention that the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, sorry, yeah, of Homeland Security, Mallorca, has told me there are 10 million open jobs. There is a clamoring for individuals to fill them that, in this case, domestic workers in the United States do not fill these jobs. So, in other words, there's a need. Given that fact, what do you make of President Trump saying things like immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country? How does that kind of language affect you and how does it help the situation? I think that's just politi political talk. I think we do know that our, uh, the work ethic of the American people is not what it used to be. I know that we need workers. We definitely do. But it has to be a, a, a lawful system. Uh, you know, no, I don't believe that immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. I don't. Uh, we There's a lot of good people that are willing or can come in and be productive. And we know we need them, but we have to do it the right way. Well, we, 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 we how, uh, if you were in charge, if you were king, <laughs> how would you fix this? What is the right way to fix it? And, and, and especially since you said you believe this will be a major election issue. It'd be difficult to because because of the parties. But at the very end, you know, right now, what we do need to do is a quick fix as far as to stop, especially uh, people coming in and not through the ports of entries. That is necessary, but more because of national security. Of course, working together, we know we need uh, immigrants. We know that our, our guest worker program needs to be fixed. We know that we have a lot of people that are already in here that can be very productive yet and law abiding, yet we don't give them an opportunity. But it is not up to us. And if I were king, there's a lot of different things I, I could do, but I'm not. So it's going to be up to Congress, to the Senate, to make sure that they take care of our American people. Mm -hmm. and, and as you know better than I, there has been a long-standing set of bipartisan, you know, solutions that, as you say, have been stymied by the various um, politicians in Washington. Uh, Mayor Villalobos, yeah, thank goodness. you so much indeed for joining me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we turn now to another humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The U.N. Relief Agency says at least nine people were killed and dozens injured when a U.N. shelter was struck by tank fire during intense fighting around Khan Yunus. Meantime, Israel tells CNN there is no concrete deal being negotiated for the release of the hostages. It's been over three months since the October 7th Hamas attack that kidnapped more than 240 hostages and killed 1,200 Israelis. And Israel's counteroffensive has killed 25,000 Gazans, according to the health ministry there. 90% of the population has been displaced, and one of those forced to flee her home is 20-year-old Nowara Diab. Our producers reached Nowara, and despite recurring blackouts and sporadic communication, she finally managed to send this video diary to explain what she's gone through, including the loss of her closest friends. As I walk on the streets in Gaza, death, destruction, and chaos is all around me. I often think about how my life could have been and how I would still have a home and how my two best friends, Maimana and Abraham, would still be alive. My heart aches every single day for my men and Abraham, who were killed in their homes by the Israeli airstrikes. <laughs> Maimana was a beautiful soul and so creative. I'd always brag about how great she was. We talked for hours on end, talking about anything and everything, or just being silly. Is it me or are we best friends? Yeah! Every moment with her was full of love and laughter. Her talent for painting was extraordinary. This painting of a yellow flower will always hold a special place in my heart. Little did I know, it would be her last gift to me. It broke my heart, having to leave it behind, just like I had to leave her. Abraham was the most kind and funny person I'd ever met. Not to mention also the smartest. This kingdom needs a king. We got to know each other when working on a play about King Odysseus at a theater project in Gaza. He played the role of a king. And would just make everyone laugh. And was rarely seen without his camera capturing the good times. But with both of them gone, I don't think that there will be any good moments. I need them so much right now, and I need them more than ever. But I know that they are now in a better place. I just know. Now, life in Rafah is hard. I wake up trying to survive another day. Thankful, my family and I are alive. For two weeks, we stayed in a tent in Khan Yunis, shared by seven people. 
Water is the hardest thing to ever find here. Rarely, bottles are given to us, like this on a truck. But with so little, we were forced to drink salty water for a while. So if we don't die from airstrikes, we're gonna die from dehydration and starvation. When this war is over, there's another one waiting for us. The agony in our hearts. Going back home and seeing everything crumbled into pieces. Gone just like the tens of thousands of Palestinian men, women, and children killed in this war. I hope that my story has meant something to you. And you can think of us as human beings, not just numbers. Because this is me giving you a sneak peek into hell. Nawara Diab there. And the IDF says they do not target civilians, saying their war is against Hamas, not the people of Gaza. This war and Putin's war in Ukraine, not to mention the risk of conflict with China, are all worrying American voters. And after Trump won the New Hampshire primary last night, many Americans are incredulous about another Trump-Biden rematch. Although Nikki Haley isn't giving up just yet, saying the race is far from over. True to form, Trump falsified his record last night, claiming to have previously won New Hampshire in both the primaries and the general election. In fact, Hillary Clinton beat him there in 2016, and Joe Biden won in 2020. It's deja vu as the world watches in disbelief. Just before last night's primary, I got the global perspective from journalists Emily Maitlis and Mark Lander. We started with the Israel-Hamas war. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Christiane. Okay, Thanks so I want to ask you, you have been to Israel um, since October 7th. And I'm quite stunned by what some Israeli reporters are telling us, that the Israeli people are not seeing the extent of the human suffering in Gaza. Can you tell me about what you noticed and what effect that's having on the, on the population? Well, I, during my time there, which was now a couple of months ago, um, I still felt there was a population that was going through its own trauma from October 7th. And it still is. And obviously. still is. And, and to that extent, I felt like that trauma was so overwhelming that the crushing death toll in Gaza was, was a little bit of an abstraction at that point. Um, and, and it was not really filtering in because the country was, after all, still recovering from what, as they rightly pointed out, was multiple, the equivalent of multiple 9-11s. Um, has that changed over the past couple of months? I imagine it would have to. We've moved further and further away, and the death toll in Gaza has become more and more um, devastating. And, and one would hope that it has, but it, it, there is also a very strong uh, bias in the media and an effort in the media to keep the country um, absolutely united in this war effort that is requiring more of the Israeli people, even on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of uh, reserve deployments, in terms of their economy being brought to a virtual halt, than almost any conflict in the history of the state of Israel. So I think that that's why the Gaza death toll and humanitarian catastrophe has not yet registered with the Israeli people the way it has around the rest of the world, because they simply started in such a different place. <laughs> And Emily, it's starting to resonate with Israel's closest allies, whether it's Britain, whether it's the United States uh, and its neighbors who want to normalize. Now everybody's talking about the only way to fix this and get normalized relations and security for Israel in the neighborhood is to first talk about the Palestinian 
statehood and the end of occupation. So I'm wondering how you cover this issue, what the Jewish community here is thinking and saying today about this incredibly difficult issue and what pressure you see, for instance, on either the government or on the Labour Party, which wants to win in the election that's going to happen in this country. Look, so far, the government and the Labour Party have been in lockstep on this. It was difficult for um, Keir Starmer originally because of the Labour Party. He's the head of the Labour Party here and he took over from Jeremy Corbyn who faced um, very severe accusations of anti-Semitism yep. within his party. So Keir Starmer's approach was to say, I am not Jeremy Corbyn, I get this, mm -hmm. I'm listening to Israel. And he made uh, himself almost glued to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister's side on this one and their essence was they were going to back Israel, whatever it needed to do. As Mark says, when we've seen the death toll rise, when we've seen really how um, impossible it has become to defend what is going on in Gaza right now, many Israelis who we've seen marching on the streets... You can see the polls even now. Right. I mean, they, they do not trust the man in charge of their government. He has brought in serious right-wing extremists to help him form his coalition. He's acting in a way that's not dissimilar to Trump in that we think he's in power to try and stay out of the courts, to stay out of all the legal, um, you know, sort of horrors that are, that are chasing him. And I think that is a very easy way to say, well, look at what you're doing here because it's certainly not helping Gaza, it's certainly not helping Middle East, and it's certainly not helping Israel in terms of what it wants to achieve. It's not making it any easier to get hostages out, and let's not forget there's still 100 hostages left. And the hostages are key because clearly the Israeli counteroffensive or offensive on Gaza is, not, is, is out of step with also trying to get what the people want, and that is their families back. How much pressure is that still putting on the Israeli government? Huge amount. Um, but, and in the press, by the way. Yeah, well, because it's been the number one issue domestically in Israel. What are you going to do about this? How are you going to get these people out? And the hostages are very well organized. They travel, their families travel, rather, and, and they appear regularly almost every night in Israeli media. There's some feature, some discussion, some interview. They're very eloquent. They're very anguished. And, uh, and so I think that is uh, sort of the Achilles heel for this government. They have to deliver on this. And every time there's a horrible incident where, where hostages are killed in combat, and it's happened a few times, this is a huge setback for the IDF and for the Israelis. So I do think that that's one area where Netanyahu, that's a real limitation. That's something he has to think about a lot in terms of authorizing any increased action, dragging things out longer, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I want to bring it back to the U.S. election. The idea of Biden's age, is that a media construct? Is that a real thing? Is that something that because we have been hammering it every single time, there's a story? Yeah, I was in Georgia um, just before Christmas and we were talking to some young guys who were college educated, okay? They had jobs, one was a pilot, and they were all talking about their support for Donald Trump. And the word they used was he's a strong leader. If you're going to go to war, you want a strong man behind you. And it was really interesting because if you look at how Trump has handled the campaigning, you know, the campaign stump speeches so far, what he does is he carries on talking about Biden's uh, weakness or sort of fibrility and, and, and his own strength. Now, the idea that there's only four years or so between these two guys, right, is something that we should all, again, keep in the front of our mind. Biden is always softly spoken. 
I mean, I do think he has a slight problem with his voice. He doesn't actually project enough. Because of the stutter, he sort of mumbles a lot. There's quite a lot of words that are swallowed. And Trump performs, right? He goes out, he's bombastic, he does this. But that is the message that he wants to carry. I mean, quite frankly, if the Republicans were really onto something, they would put Nikki Haley in that position because that is the way you contrast, you know, Biden's age and her age, you know, her sort of nimbleness and his because... Donald Trump is not a young man, whichever way you look at it. Has it been overplayed by the media? I started thinking that at the beginning, but I've talked to a lot of Democrats around Biden who are very worried. Whether it's about his age or whether it's They're about the perception sure. of yeah. his age, yeah. they are worried. I mean, I'm, I'm, I keep trying to figure this out, Mark, because I've also listened to podcasts and other things, which actually show that a lot of this idea is being ramped up on TikTok and stuff. I mean, generations of people who've never seen FDR, I don't know, in a wheelchair or, or whatever it is, are being told that this is a real problem. So I'm just, how do you, how do you see it? Well, look, we, we live, whether we like it or not, in a visual age, in a television age, in a TikTok age. And so what Emily says is right. It doesn't much matter if Joe Biden's age uh, impedes his ability to do his job well, which I think it probably doesn't. He's surrounded by terrific advisors, He's forgotten more about American foreign policy than most people ever learned. Um, he brings a huge amount of wisdom. And, uh, and by all accounts, and talking to my colleagues, I don't have the sense that he is not on his game on making important decisions. And if you look at his record, it actually stands up well to the last few presidents, some of whom were decades younger than him at the time. Um, none of that actually matters as a political question, because if people think because he's old, he's weak, and Donald Trump is stronger, then that's the ball game. So I sort of feel like that debate, you can have that debate, but it doesn't matter what I think or what people think about his competence. It matters what the voters think. So if they think he's too old, now, where I think we can play a role as the press, and particularly people who cover President Biden day to day, is to, is to write about this intelligently, unscrupulously, and thoughtfully. In other words, if there's evidence that Joe Biden's age actually is a performance issue for him, then we should point that out, right? And, and there have been a couple of places where he's made gaffes. He's had to be cleaned up the next day by AIDS on some important enough issues. Um, but by the same token, there's also a lot of evidence that he's conducted the business of the president very competently. So our job is to do that. There's some things that are simply going to be up to the voters to decide. Yeah, and, I'd also yeah. say if you look at who Trump idolizes. It's the strong men of Europe. It's Erdogan in Turkey. It's Orban in Hungary. It's oh. Putin in Russia. And when he says strong man, or when he thinks of these strong men, it's not a physical thing. It's about authoritarianism, right? And, and I wonder whether the voters who say they want a strong man know that, because this is about democracy and but authoritarianism. But it becomes very easy to ally two things, doesn't it? Right. To be talking about authoritarianism yes. and then to sort of point to a man who's slightly stooped and go, you won't get strength from him. The number here that people are actually looking at that is leaving people jaw-dropped mm -hmm. is the 66% of Iowan voters who believe Donald Trump's lie, that they have been convinced that Donald Trump is the right president of this time and that his questioning of the legitimacy of Joe Biden is something that he's taken to Iowa. So I think all the reporting that we do should come actually from that prison, that he is an election denier, that he has managed to convince people of the lies that he's been telling for the last three and a half years, that he's using his 91 indictments 
as a fundraising tool. And I don't think that any of us can be covering your election, the American elections, without actually starting from that place. Mm -hmm. If that is not a sort of a black cloud across your forehead of everything that you're saying on air, of everything that you're writing and thinking about, then we're not doing our jobs properly. Mark, I just want to double down a little bit. Are people in the world sure that he's going to be, you say, this feeling of inevitability? Is it sort of once bitten, twice shy? They don't want to look stupid and say, of course, he couldn't win because he did in 2016? I think there's an element of that, yes. And, you know, I, I think if you drill down with people and you say, look, do you truly, genuinely believe this is going to be the outcome? They will acknowledge we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. They've been surprised before. Politics is inherently unpredictable. U.S. politics these days is particularly unpredictable. So I think that sophisticated analysis of this in the, in the world at large acknowledges that nothing is inevitable here. A president who, as Emily says, is facing 91 criminal counts, the idea, or a, rather a candidate who's facing 91 criminal counts, that he could emerge as president, there's something slightly incredulous about that. So um, I think that it is a, it, it's more of an emotional feeling that if the country was capable of doing this once before and they see these kinds of numbers, this kind of incredible, resilient, unshakable loyalty on the part of MAGA nation, I think it just, it, it more resides in the pit of their stomach. Well, if it happened once before, it could happen again. We need to start planning as though it may happen again. Yeah. Emily Maitlis, Mark Landler, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now we turn to the racial wealth gap in the United States. The Barber of Little Rock is a short documentary that follows the story of Arlo Washington. He runs a barber college in Arkansas and a credit union dedicated to serving the black community. The film exposes issues of segregation and economic inequality that persist to this day. And Michelle Martin spoke with Washington and with John Hoffman, one of the filmmakers, shortly after they received the news that their film had been nominated for an Oscar. Thanks, Christian. John Hoffman, Arlo Washington, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. And a congratulations on the Oscar nomination. Absolutely. Mr. Washington, you have been a barber in Little Rock in your community for what, gosh, more than 20 years. Before we move on, I, I, I just, um, I'm just not sure everybody understands what a barber in some communities does. Could you just describe for folks who may not understand this, what role a barber can play in his oh, community? Absolutely. The barber, the barber is the cornerstone of the brick building and the pillar of the community. Uh, barbers are essential. Barbers, the history of barbers, barbers were uh, highly esteemed individuals in their community, were the priests. They did the tooth pulling. They did the bloodletting. Uh, I mean, we have dentists and doctors because of the barber profession. It's one of the most, oldest and most prestigious professions. And so barbers play, play a critical role in, 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 in being a melting pot or a, a, a community gathering for um, um, people needing, needing services. But you, 
you opened the community's first community development financial institution. This is back in 2008. You know, being a barber is no small thing. Running a business is no small thing. Running a barbering school is no small thing. So how did you get the idea to open this financial institution? We emerged out of an unmet credit need in our community. Uh, in 2009, Arkansas became a credit desert with the prohibition of predatory payday lending. And from that, uh, we began to get uh, community members to, to come and ask for loans. And that's how we started. Um, and like most small businesses, um, you know, I started it out of my pocket. Being a small business owner in the community and growing up in the community and uh, experiencing generational poverty myself, uh, I know the importance of access to capital and, you know, being a barber in the community for so long and providing services, uh, being in the service industry, uh, wanted to be able to solve for and create um, an opportunity for those unmet credit needs to be met. Uh, whenever individuals would come to the barber school and ask for, and, and, and inquire about loans, uh, we would um, provide them with small dollar short term loans to be able to meet their immediate uh, unmet need. And it grew from there, from from providing loans to our to our student population, those that were needing wraparound services like childcare, uh, transportation, food, shelter, uh, providing those services to be able to help them to be able to uh, complete the, the program, uh, that we saw it was a minimum viable product that are, just wasn't available uh, in our community. And we and then I be, began to do some research on um, uh, predatory payday loans and how Payday loans were was affecting my community, putting individuals in debt traps. Uh, we wanted to be able to provide a safer alternative for our community members that that would that would impact their credit, help them to build and generate wealth. Okay. Mr. Hoffman, how did you hear about Mr. Washington's work? Well, Christine Turner, um, my co-director, and I wanted to make a film about the racial wealth gap, and in our sort of deep dive into the problem. We read a book called The Color of Money by Marissa Baradari, which is a remarkable book about the history of black banking since Reconstruction and how it's just a series of failure after failure after failure of government programs. Um, but she calls out um, a program that was created during the Clinton administration of community development financial institutions, CDFIs, which is a program run by the Fed that gets capital into underserved communities communities of color and urban centers, rural communities, because Clinton understood that um, if people don't have, don't have access to capital, they can't build small businesses, they can't get loans for their cars or for their homes, for their farms. Um, so I was pointed to a conversation between Bill Clinton during COVID um, and a woman named Donna Gambrell, who was the first director of this program in his administration. Thank you, President Clinton. Um, and I reached out to her. She's now um, the president of the National Association of Black Bankers. And I said, Donna, we want to embed in one of these CDFIs, one of these high-touch loan institutions in the community, um, and live there for a year and follow the money, see how access to capital can transform people's lives. Um, by creating opportunities. And so she said, there's this guy in Little Rock, his name is Arlo Washington, and he is, has a barber college and he has a shipping container in the parking lot of his barber college and it, where he's opened this CDFI. And they're like, we gotta be Arlo. So that's how it happened. 
I mean, people are sharing some of their deepest wounds. And I and I and, and Mr. Washington, you, you know, you certainly have to know that. Right. And I was just wondering if it was hard to kind of persuade people that the purpose of this was not to kind of make fun of people or right. look it's down perfect. on them, but to, to to elevate the work. Absolutely. Um, of course, when you have a talk about money um, and need, that's a very sensitive subject uh, that a lot of people feel uncomfortable with, especially if they're on the receiving end of it. And telling their stories um, is something that, um, you know, these these were they were very authentic and organic um, and they were in need. You know, if, if a lot of people, if you're in need, you know, you don't think about who's watching or what's going on. You just know that you need your life bill paid. You know that you need your help with your rent because you're about to be evicted or, or, or you're homeless and you need to be placed. And you just it's life is happening. It's a crisis. This is a grant, just an emergency grant, because I heard you say you didn't have any clothes, you didn't have any transportation, you, you know, if everything burnt up. For 17 days in a hotel? Man. There you go. How much is the weekly rent? The weekly rent? Uh-huh. It's not weekly. She was just going to charge me like 525 a month. My mother, she she passed away with cancer, and uh, so I'm just thinking if, since you, you, you know, in that situation, maybe if we was able to do, you know, maybe a, a grant for a month, that'd give you time to find a place. How do you think that works? Help me I think lot. that'll help. What you think? It'll help me a lot. Mr. Alfin, I was just curious though, I mean, as a person, you're coming to this because you wanted to understand this issue more, this idea of, you know, black and brown communities being historically underserved and underserved to this day. Were there there were things in the course of your reporting that surprised even you or that really stay with you even now? I think that the racial divide and the economic divide in Little Rock um, and the extent of it um, really uh, challenged me and my um, understanding about um, cities in America in 2022 and 2023 when we're making this film. You know, the two sides of Little Rock are divided by an interstate. Um, and that, it, that the effects of redlining are still being felt. There are, there are strong reverberations of redlining that's still at work and at play in our American cities. It's not just Little Rock, it's cities all over this country. So Arlo and Scott Green, who happens to be the nephew of Ernest Green, one of the Little Rock men, um, go on this tour of uh, the 12th Street Corridor, which is the neighborhood where Little Rock Central High School is, which prior to integration was you know, a, a wealthy white neighborhood. You see these enormous, beautiful old homes, abandoned, bordered up, tremendous, tremendous lack of opportunity. There's not an ATM you know, for, for literally miles for the community. And the film explores that and portrays that. Arlo and Scott Green drive across the interstate, which was built and divided the highway in a white flight after integration, left the Little Rock Central neighborhood, you know, bereft of, of opportunity. And they go literally across the highway to a neighborhood where there are 14 banks serving only 8,000 people, where there's zero banks serving, serving 30,000 black members of the community, zero. And so what Arlo is doing in the CDFI program that he you know, has created you see that it is having a measurable impact on the lives of people in Little Rock. And it's not just a few lives, it's thousands of people that Arlo is, is impacting. He's creating jobs. Um, and he speaks about that in the film. 
that you have to, you can't develop the community unless you develop the people. So and you can't develop the people unless they have access to capital. So, Mr. Washington, what's the average loan and what's the repayment? What's the repayment rate? Right. The average loan is about anywhere from 500 to 2,500. Mm -hmm. um, and the repayment is about a default rate is about 6%. 6%. Yes. So that means that today, what ninety four percent of the people pay the loans back. Yes. So you know the argument, Mr. Washington, that the big banks make about why they don't serve that community is that they figure people are poor and they're not going to pay the loans back. But people do pay your loans back. Yeah, I mean, so we have we have different loan products. You know, we have and 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 our product, our loan products meet community members where they are on their financial journey. Uh, we also provide developmental. Uh, services as well, like financial literacy and technical assistance for small businesses. And so, but the minimum viable product here is the small dollar loan, the consumer loan, because when you think about the gaps uh, that individuals and communities um, experience, you know, it's that it's that short term funding uh, opportunity that keeps their keeps them keeps their credit in good, healthy shape, uh, keeps their, you know, them being able to stay in their home or keep their car. And but life circumstances happen. And so uh, payday lenders, predatory payday lenders, you know, are right there at the door to be able to uh, uh, provide capital that a traditional bank just uh, simply won't provide because of it being such a small deal. Um, but the payday lending industry is a trillion dollar industry as well. So, you know, there's some even though it's predatory to some people, it's helpful to folks that really need access and can't get help anywhere else. So, um, you know, providing that minimum viable product here in Arkansas, with it being the only state that was blacked out for a while with a 17% usury rate uh, rate cap is what, um, you know, still is what created the interior counties being credit being a credit desert. You know, member, community members are driving to border states to get loans or going online and still accessing these uh, predatory payday loans or merchant cash advances for their business. And, you know, there was a there was an unmet credit need that just wasn't being filled for those loans that were $50,000 and less. We saw in the film that initially you were funding these loans out of your own pocket just because people you knew asked you. How do you fund it now? Well, it's funded now through grants uh, uh, and, and loans, low-cost long-term loans. Uh, CDFIs, uh, the, 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 the model of CDFIs, you know, we, is, is debt capital. A lot of it's debt capital. Uh, so we borrow uh, money at a, at, at, at a lower rate and then we relend it at a higher rate. Uh, CDFIs are spread lenders. So, um, you know, that's, at the, at the, you know, when it first started, you know, we, I, I didn't think about that. I just wanted to help uh, and, and, and be a resource. Uh, and we were restricted on the amount of funding that we were able to deploy. Or, or the amount of money that we were able to lend each month. You know, uh, I would, I set aside a thousand dollars out of, out of uh, my paycheck, and I would uh, make two hundred and fifty dollar loans at um, at five percent for you know uh, six month terms. Of course, that wasn't sustainable. It wasn't wasn't profitable, and it wasn't scalable. Uh, we got a little. Bit, we got more sophisticated uh, as we began to grow and build capacity. So you know, Mr. Hoffman, I think where there are something like what fifteen hundred. Um, community development financial institutions around the country, that's still not a lot compared to the number of places where people are unbanked or minimally banked or who are relying on payday loans. Why do you think that there aren't more of these? Well, there aren't more because the 
Congress has only allocated a certain amount of money. So you could double, you could triple, you could quadruple um, the CDFI program, and you still would have a tremendous amount of unmet need out there. Mm. But as it's conceived, it is working conceptually. And so, you know, again, credit back to Bill Clinton for, you know, seeing this, that there was an unmet credit need in this country and it's keeping communities down. Um, and so it's about $10 billion a year right now in the federal government. It's administered by the Fed. This is $10 billion that's going out and Arlo gets a little piece of that and he's able to distribute that money and change people's lives. So if the CDFI program, if Congress decided to double or triple it, there would be that much more money that people like Arlo could be, you know, loaning out and changing more people's lives. But Arlo, do you think that, um, you know, I think one of the things that people will see in the film is that getting a loan from your institution, it's kind of a different process. Oh, you're saying you're interested in the loan? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm just gonna get this out. So tell me about what you're doing with your businesses. I'm Barbara Salist. I do credit restoration. I also have a t-shirt and decal line. Okay. Due to the things that I deal with in life, mm -hmm. such as sickle cell, mm -hmm. having a pacemaker, having 80% mass in my right breast, going to treatment once a week. And then you still run three businesses? Yes, ma'am. I heard that now. Do you feel like your staff, your employees have sort of a special sauce or something in the way that they deal with people or see people or evaluate people? I would say it's the cultural difference. Um, you know, what's, what's held communities back, um, you know, for the most part is fear and insecurity of dealing with um, a financial institution because unbanked and underbanked populations is just not used to it. And it can be intimidating when you, you know, uh, are are not treated with the same uh, dignity and respect that, um, you know, our white counterparts uh, experience. When you think about the, um, you think about the historic, you know, um, abandonment of, of banks from low and moderate income communities and, you know, just the generational poverty and that's caused from that, uh, you know, and it's a mentality. So uh, I, I, I would say the cultural difference. And, and Mr. Hoffman, let me ask you before we let you go. I was just wondering if there was something about this experience of making this film that has changed you in some way. I love making this film. I, I think that uh, for me to be uh, welcomed in a white man, an older white man with white hair, to be welcomed in to by Arlo and to all these communities that he's a part of, whether it's in the Barber College, in the shipping container, in the other uh, bank branch, and um, to develop these friendships with people who will forever be in my life, um, and to really have um, the, the the trust extended to me in particular, um, and uh, has been, you know, a deep a deeply affecting experience um, and a treasured one. Hmm. And Mr. Washington, what is next for you? What 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 more do you want? You know, it's 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 all about the mission uh, with me at this point and staying true to the mission of and, and closing the racial closing the wealth gap in America. You know, you know, um, we've we now have a, a federal credit union. Uh, we now are taking deposits so we can we, we've taken a holistic approach to closing the wealth gap. Um, 
we're able to uh, provide, you know, financial literacy uh, with the loan fund, with the credit union. Um, we're able to teach about investing and saving and all of the things that are essential uh, when it comes down to um, your financial stability. Uh, whether you're needing to gain or regain your economic mobility, just being a resource, being a resource and a conduit of resources, ensuring that the, the federal programs or uh, investments that are made uh, to get to the meant to get to the community, get there. You know, that's that's my life's work. You know, I consider it God's work. I consider it an honor and a privilege to serve. All right. Arlo Washington, John Hoffman, thank you both so much for talking with us today. And congratulations once again. Thank you, thank you so much. A vital mission indeed, and we wish them good luck at the Oscars in March. And tune in tomorrow night for my interview with the award-winning filmmaker Ava DuVernay. She'll join me around her new movie, Origin, which is inspired by Isabel Wilkerson's best-selling book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. We'll discuss that new film, the Oscars, and much more. And finally, away from their wars to sporting triumphs, the Palestinian football team made history, beating Hong Kong and qualifying for the knockout stages of the AFC Asian Cup for the very first time. While over in the land of Oz, Ukrainian tennis player Diana Yastremska has broken through to the semi-finals of the Australian Open after entering as a qualifier. It's the first time that's happened in almost half a century. And that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.